calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Flinor, and I am super pumped today. We have a super special guest host here with us. We have the lovely Maria Dong. Hi, Maria. How you doing? Great. How are you? Fantastic. So happy to have you here guest hosting. And you were just on the pod last month. Ah! It was the pinnacle of my life. <laughs> and we were like, you must come back. Don't you dare leave. Uh, that is actually one of the jokes Stephanie Williams often makes about us, which is like, <laughs> Once you're on the podcast, you're like part of the family. We're like, you know what? Get yourself whatever you need out of the fridge. Make yourself at home. Also, now we have a chore for you. You're going to be part of the team. So thank you for being on. We're so happy to have you here. And I'm going to let you do your part now. (laughs) Great. I'm so excited to introduce Mari Naomi. Uh, Mari Naomi is an American graphic artist and cartoonist. And their new book, I Thought You Loved Me, is a graphic memoir told in prose, collage, and sequential art, uh, which explores queer culture, feminism, race, class, sex work, and is just unbelievable. So I'm so, so excited to have them here today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yay! Welcome back! Welcome back! (laughs) Listeners who've been with us for a while know that episode 41, These People Matter, is another interview we had with Mari Naomi. It was actually during our first ever Pride extravaganza. I remember just being so excited you were there. I didn't know a ton about you at that time, but became a hardcore Mari Naomi nerd, which I am <laughs> still proudly. Um, oh my God, I forgot one of your books that's come out since we last talked. Okay, okay, I'm gonna have to write it down. Um, okay, okay, okay. I was like, oh, 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 I'm not gonna ruin it now. I'll save it for later. I'll save it for later. I'm just so excited. Oh, I had forgotten. Okay. Um, yes, so I am a hardcore fan now. You can't get rid of me even if you try. Uh, but, you know, is there anything else you wanted to add about yourself before we jump into some questions? Uh, no, I've just been making comics since the 90s. Um, and I also run the Cartoonists of Color, Queer Cartoonists, and car- uh, Disabled Cartoonists databases. Um, so y'all should look it up if you don't know about them. Um, but that pretty much says everything about me. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty impressive. That's a pretty yeah. impressive, interesting <laughs> 
they're like, you know, I just do some things that are amazing and make the world better. No big. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, you everyone should make sure to check out episode 41 because we talk a little bit more in depth about those databases, how they were pulled together, how they're used. If you're a cartoonist and you are disabled, a person of color, queer, any combination thereof, make sure that you go check those out both to list yourself, but also to find collaborators to work with. I've used them a bunch of times to find different people to put on listicles, whatever I'm working on. So I think it's, they're just an amazing resource. And I think it's, you know, you tell me where I'm wrong. My understanding is you do this entirely voluntarily and it's, it's probably a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, now it's, I kind of got into the flow. I started in 2014 though. And um, I I pay someone to, to do like the database engineering stuff. So it's, it's, it's not a lot of work anymore, but I took, you know, thousands of hours to get here. So. It's a yeah, you're like, now it's easy, <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, today we are going to talk primarily about I Thought You Loved Me, which is your just mind-blowing, multimedia, brain-shattering, I guess I just want to talk about how much it made my brain change, collage, cartoon, memoir, I don't think there's any fiction. So memoir, I was going to say novel. I was like, no, it just kind of reads like a novel because it's so juicy. Uh, You know, it's like kind of a gossip rag, you know, like it is so many things. And I think, you know, we can't help it. I would love to start with what was the day you said, okay, this isn't just a grievance I hold in my heart. This is a memoir I need to write. And you do talk about it a little bit in the memoir. So we're going to get a little meta, but I would love to hear, you know, like how did you, what was the first piece you put together in it? I, the first thing was that um, was the text that I sent to my friend um, who I call Alyssa in the book. Um, and so that was January 7th, 2016 on a Thursday when I said, I think my next book is going to be about Jody. I think I'm ready. And she said, time to expel the demon. So that was 11 a.m. in the morning on that day. That was that was the very. Uh, so, so I this is this book is very unusual in that you're kind of following me along in the making of the book, as well as, you know, me excavating all these memories. Um, whereas a lot of books have, I mean, it's not that I didn't edit this book, but a lot of books get a lot of nudging and, and, you know, editing. Um, I was, I edited a lot, but a lot of that was visual editing versus the content. The content is pretty pure. Um, as far as like this, you're, you're following me along into this kind of mystery into my brain. I think that's one thing that actually makes it really, really addictive and fascinating. And it it feels so truthful. Like it really feels, um, not voyeuristic is the word I'm looking for, but like you're kind of peeling into someone's personal life on this very deep and um, like a level that we don't usually get to see things, even fiction or prose or even like the inside of a a narrator's mind. And that was something that I really just, I I couldn't get enough of, like how, uh, how real it felt, how like, like truthful in a, in a different level almost. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, I wasn't holding back aside from changing the names. Like all of this was, was a lot. When I started, I didn't even know, like, is this going to be a book? Is it going to be just for myself? Will I share it with other people? But I knew it was a possibility and I was excited about doing the art. And at this point, I'm so used to exposing my feelings to the world after making memoirs since the 90s. Like, I feel like I'm just very comfortable sharing. But honestly, I didn't know if this would have a beginning, middle, and end, like how it was going to work out. So, um, yeah, the readers literally felt following me on, uh, following my 
brain waves and like following me on the adventure with me. That's so surprising because there's such a clear structure to it. You know, it, it definitely felt to me like each of the parts or sections, like I was moving into a new level of revelation. The stakes had kind of moved and changed. I, I thought there was such a beautiful structure to it. So it's it's really surprising to hear you say, well, I wasn't sure if there'd be a structure or not. It's amazing. Oh, no, yeah. None of that was planned out. Um, as as I got deeper into it, there um, there were a lot of post-it notes on a lot of cork boards. I have a lot of cork boards. <laughs> so, which is why you actually see the cork board in the story. Um, that, that's kind of like the the palette of my brain, like the blank canvas where I'm just moving things around, trying to figure out what happened when and, you know, how that affects like who I am now and how that affected our relationship. So, um, so there was a bit of moving around in that I was figuring out like the chronology of things of our friendship. Um, but uh, as far as the structure of the book, not really. It's such a layered narrative. And I think what's really fun is because it's so visual that, that works on multiple levels. Oh, the layers are layered, if you will. And, and it's like, literally, you know, you, at one point, I was, I was so moved. I was so moved by the way you used photographs and then sort of used floral yeah. print to show, you know, I, in some point I can interpret it, you know, you, you might be like, that's not what I was showing at all. But, you know, it seemed like there was this sort of breaking loose or this um, almost unstoppable sort of flowers at one point are flowing from a, a, a photo of yourself when you have really long hair and, mm-hmm. you know, your eyes are replaced by the fo- flowers. And part of that felt like, oh, is that, is that seeing life through rose-colored glasses? Is that, is that just <laughs> like wildness pouring out of you? Is it both, you know? And I, I don't need to know. I mean, if you want to share, obviously, I'm happy to hear it. But I'm curious about the construction. You, you've talked about using sticky notes. You've talked about using real you know, diary entries, obviously, we know that when we read the book, you know, text, those things. But also, how did you figure out how the visuals connected with those pieces? When did you know, like, how did you choose, okay, this is lined paper, or oh, this needs to be four photos, sort of overlaid with each other? Like, what was that process like? That was the most fun part, honestly, of making this book was coming up with all the visual metaphors. There's not one photograph used in here that I didn't put a lot of thought into. Like everything is completely deliberate. So yeah, those flowers are definitely representative of stuff like, um, and honestly, the, so where I started visually when I was working on this book was of a, um, I, I was kind of inspired by, well, not inspired by my own painting. That sounds really stupid, but, um, it was kind of all based from a collage that I made uh, a long time ago. I think I finished it in 2004, 2005. And I actually put the collage in the book. Um, and it was a life-size collage, um, double-sided of me. And I, I'm on both sides. So it's like the size of a person. And actually my cat's in there too. And it took me years to make where I was just cutting out little pictures of grass to make the grass, uh, pictures of roses to make me and my cat kitty. And um, the, that collage is called Love and Death. And so one side is love and the other side is death. But like, I was never pretty really clear about which is which. Um, but so that's where I kind of came up with the roses. Um, that, that artwork um, has kind of a story behind it in that I mean, it took so long to make and it was, I just, it was one of the most, the things that probably the art piece that I'm the proudest of. And it also got ruined by a gallery before I even got it, before it even went on um, 
to get a showing. So it's no. never public. How, like, ruined how? They, fo- like, so they were supposed to put it in this gallery show. Um, they ended up not having room for it. So instead of just, like, moving it to the back, the people, they paid to move things around. Um, they crumpled it. They folded it. <gasps> um, but it wasn't meant to be folded, so it it just ripped up the seams of it. So parts of it still exist. Um, it was, I mean, that happened a long time ago. That was, yeah, 2000, maybe 2009 when that happened. And I mean, I still, I just, I still feel so sad when I think about it. So in some <laughs> ways, this book is my way of putting that piece out there. Um, yeah, that was just devastating. You know, we... I feel like so often we talk about creativity, you know, and, and Maria knows well, we were just talking about this when, when she was on the pod, is that we, you know, we talk about the winds. We, we sort of paint things in a nicer picture because it's it's frightening to, to share our, our things that we're bad at or things that go wrong or shit that you cannot control. Like some fucking person folds your art. Like my, I'm so upset. <laughs> it doesn't matter what happened that? 15 plus years ago. I am so upset. <laughs> and I, I just... It's amazing to say to yourself as an artist, like, okay, I'm going to like pick myself up. I'm going to dust myself off. I'm going to find some other way to use this concept or reclaim this art that someone took from me. And I I think I'd love to hear a little bit. And I'm going to ask the question, but then Mari, if you don't want to talk about it, we can easily (laughs) cut it. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about that process for you, because I also know this book was originally picked up by a different publisher. Yes. It, that ended and has been picked up by a new publisher and crowdfunded since then. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the publication process, because it seems like you're making a lot of lemonade out of lemons. And that's oh my impressive. This book, I mean, this is what my ninth book or my eighth book published. It's, it's, it, it's up there. And this is by far the hardest one. It's, it's had the rockiest road. Um, Rob Kirby told me it was my most difficult birth. And I mean, I'm still birthing it and it's, <laughs> But I'm also completely just, I'm like, no, this has to, this has to go out there. This has to be in the world. Like uh, years ago, I told myself I would never crowdfund a book, but apparently I will. I, apparently I will um, because the book is that important to me uh, that I'm like, I need this to lie, to survive. Um, I don't want to travel. I haven't gotten COVID yet and I don't want to get it, but apparently um, I am willing to get COVID to get this book out. Like I'm like, it's more important to me than my health. I would die for this book apparently. Um, so yeah, it's like my, it's like my problem child. It's my little, uh, my baby who I know is going to grow up to be a serial killer, but I have to, I have to do it anyway. (laughs) I have to say like, I'm so torn by what you just said, because on one hand I'm like, no, don't sacrifice your health for anything. Right. (laughs) But at the same, and especially I had COVID, it was really horrible. So I'm like, no, don't do that. I don't recommend it. Zero out of 10. Um, But at the same time, like it is so very special. Like I just could not, I really, I think that even just with the story you just told about like your broken art, um, it feels like a book that's more than a book. Like it's connected to so many other things. It kind of, it's like almost like an experience that exists in this like web of experiences. And when you're reading it, you get the 
like the ability to reach out and touch all of these other experiences and kind of having that context, I was like, oh, that totally makes sense because it's kind of how it feels as a narrative. So on one hand, I'm like, yeah, I love this book. You should do whatever you can to get it out there. On the other hand, I'm like, please don't get sick. That's really, don't do that. So (laughs) I'm very torn. We're all going to die somehow. I mean, that's what I figure. And at this point, this book is bigger than myself, I feel. Not that, I mean, not to hype myself up, but I just don't want it to disappear. Like it would just... I, I do feel like it's more important to me in the way that parents, I guess, feel that way about their children. I don't know. I never wanted kids and probably that's why. <laughs> but I always wanted books and I'm really happy about um, that I have them. But this one, I don't know. This one is so, it, it is very personal, but I also think it's kind of important or else I wouldn't have wanted to share it. Not because of my experience is important, but because I think it's important that we share more stories like this about friendships that aren't, you know, there's just such a lack of representation of, of like healthy or unhealthy friendships. Um, it's just, it's just not a genre that has, I don't know, it, people are so obsessed with romance and acrimonious friendships. I mean, there's certainly some acrimony in this book, but it's not like the, like my friendships don't follow the Hollywood route of, you know, what a friendship is supposed to be. Um, I don't know. I, I just think it's important to get more perspectives like this out there. And, and I, and also I think it's important to stretch the genre of graphic memoir and novels some more. I think I see that's happening more mm-hmm. and more. And, um, and it's partly why it was so hard to publish this book is because it's so different and weird. And I don't, I don't expect everyone to like it. I don't expect everyone, um, to get it, but like, I feel like there should be more books like that out there. And so that's what's important to me is just to get more diversity into the medium um, of styles of, you know, how we tell stories. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I sound very self-important right now, and, but it's not about me. It's about expanding the medium and ex- expanding genres. And I would love to be able to walk into a bookstore and just have like a, there's a whole section about, friends mm-hmm. about friendships and and this is what I feel really passionate about not specifically my experience because I'm done with it like it's I've had it it's gone I've, I've processed it with, with this book <laughs> um I I do I am really I, I think it's a good book in that um usually when I'm done with a book I can't even stand to look at it and this one I, I just keep looking at it and I still think it's good um which is very unusual for me but but aside from my own like my own stuff. Like I just, I just think it's important to do all those other things and, and I'm going to fight for it. So, yeah. Well, I think this is partially the unique problem of memoir, right? Which is like taking your own life and making stories from it and telling stories from it and very, you know, having them very much connected to reality saying, you know, I behave poorly, this person behaved poorly. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who are like, why you? And it's like, well, I don't know, because why not anybody? Anybody, yeah. I think, can write memoir and write it beautifully if they, you know, put the time into it and do the introspection. And I think that's why it being you specifically is so important, because you are so introspective, because you've kept journals since you were a child, <laughs> because you've got, we would call them today receipts, but I really, you know, documentation, the things that you know, whenever someone talks, they ask me like, oh, like, what do, how do I get into personal essay? How do I get into memoir? I'm like, step one, you need to keep a journal. You need <laughs> to keep a journal because that's how you're going to be able to dig back in. And I can't say how many essays I have gone back to a journal and literally taken a quote from 
you know, and it, it gives you a sort of immediacy with the creator that you can't have if it's just, you know, based in your memory. And memory is faulty. That's another, oh my God, I'm going to like freak out. That's another beautiful piece of this. And I think the best memoirs do this is asking about what, what do I remember? Why don't I remember things? And what does that say about me as the person? But what does that say about us? How do we remember each other? How do we remember the events that, that form us? And I, I think that it's hard to say, and we're going to go through my story, but I'm glad that you did because this is so uniquely yours and so universally ours, because it is about friends. I've I've gone through these hard friend breakups. Maria and I were texting about this. It's oh. devastating. It's devastating to 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 lose a friend that you you were like, oh my god. You put it this way. You were like, romance. I expected. I, I anticipated those those relationships could end, but with a friend, I had pictured that that Jody and I would be sitting in our rockers as old ladies. At the time, that was the word. <laughs> yes. Looking at, you know, the world through this sort of funny lens, and I remember having that conversation with a very dear friend that we are no longer, we don't speak anymore because we oh. grew apart because things happen, you know. Yeah. And I was like, no one talks about how much that still hurts. I still think mm-hmm. about her all the time. I I wonder where she is. I wonder what she's doing, and and I'm never going to get an answer probably. And that's the other piece that I think you do in this book that is just so remarkable as you were saying, you know, it's not like a Hollywood depiction of friends. And the reason I, the the immediate thought I had when you said that was like, oh, in Hollywood, everything, you get these cathartic moments and you get these, like, you're always getting closure, you know, Mm. and there's no closure. For me, there was no closure with my friend breakup. And I think that's why your book is so important because even as you take us into the back half of the book. And, you know, we, we were like, oh, we're going to get closure. We're going to get closure. And then that last page, oh my God. <laughs> and you're like, no closure. I was, angry. <laughs> I was like good angry, but I was angry. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it hit hard. I think just kind of jumping off what Essie said here and what you've been saying, I don't think until I read this book, I realized how neglected messy narratives around friendship are. Because the truth is that for the majority of people, I'm going to say in the United States, because that's the context that I live in. Mm-hmm. Friendships don't last forever. You know, the friends that you made as a small child are not the friends that you have when you're 40. Sometimes there are, or there might be a couple people that are, but the the vast majority of people that you meet in your life and form friendships with, you have kind of an ephemeral relationship with. And that's almost never depicted in media because it's so much easier for the creator and, and the story plot to just have these like fast friends that are friends forever like period, you know? And so like, this is this whole experience that we as human beings really struggle to navigate and don't know how to navigate, like SE was saying, because we don't have like a context for it. We don't have like a template for like, how do, what does a messy friend breakup look like? And you know, what, what, what are some of the things that could happen there? We just kind of ignore that it even happens. And I felt so ripped open by this book um, in the best possible way. Uh, <laughs> thinking about, you know, some of these friendships that I had that were very meaningful, that changed the course of my life and are people that for, as as he was saying, like, for whatever reason, I can no longer talk to, whether that's because it's healthier for them or for me, or we've just grown apart or, you know, we just, we weren't the kind of people that could keep up a long distance friendship and one of us moved. Like it could be something that simple. Um, But that's actually the most like normal human experience and we almost never see it. And so there was something so deep and profound about seeing it depicted this way. People change too. And that's a thing. Like 
you're like, oh, we'll be friends forever or happily ever after. But like people change all the time. And it's a matter of like, are you changing together or, you know, how is that going to work? Um, you know, and sometimes you can reconnect and, and it'll be great. But like, I don't know, most people just grow apart and they change and, you know, maybe you wouldn't like them or maybe you wouldn't like them when you, if you could see into their heart or they could see into yours, like you just, mm. it's so, there's so many complex, like the fact that anyone can stay friends for a long time is, is pretty amazing. And I do have some longtime friends. Um, and it's like, it's super impressive to me because like, it's, it's hard. Like people's lives go in different directions. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned that too. You were talking about how part of the reason you were valuing your relationship with Jody was because you still had so much in common. You were child free. You had, you know, yeah. values that were similar. And I think that's been one of the the harder parts for me of, of honestly getting older is like, oh, wow, we really do see the world so differently. I thought we were exactly the same, right? Because you never know what's inside someone. You only yeah. know what you hear or what you project, to be fair. <laughs> I've done a yeah. fair amount of projecting on friends. Uh, you know, that that sort of experience <laughs> of, oh my gosh, well, we had the same conversation and we walked away with it com- with completely different understandings about how to live oh, our lives. Completely. Yeah. So I'm curious for you, like what has been the key of maintaining those relationships and, you know, how have you, you talk a little bit about creating new friendship groups and doing that really intentionally. Is that, Mm -hmm. is that something you're still doing now? You know, you've talked a little bit about long-term friends, I guess, Mari, tell me about your friends is what I want to know. (laughs) Well, I I definitely have a mix of new friends and old friends. Like I I know a lot of people, especially my age, I'm almost 50. They, um, I I hear a lot of people saying that it's hard to make new friends and I get it, but I also, um, I don't have that problem. I meet a lot of great people just by the nature of my work. Um, I, you know, going to art receptions or, you know, just there's so much community around me that, um, around my work that um, it's easy for me to meet new people, but like I could, I could totally see how that could happen, especially um, for people who choose to become parents or don't choose, but like who are parents um, who are kind of stuck in that in, you know, certain situations, like all they meet are other parents or whatever that they may or may not get along with. Like it's almost like going to school where you're stuck with like a select group of people or when you work at a corporation and you're just stuck with your, you know, the people around you, like you might not want to be friends with any of them, but I meet so many people and I feel really lucky, Um, but I definitely have my inner circle. And then I have people who are like on the fringe of the inner circle who come in and out. And then I have like acquaintances and I have colleagues. Like I'm super lucky, but it is also hard to find time to maintain all the friendships. And that's, that's the hard part for me is finding time, but it's also that, that also extends to finding time to, make art or do something other than promoting the art that I've already Mm -hmm. made. Um, I feel like most of my time every day is spent um, picking up dog and cat poop, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Real talk. (laughs) Pet butler. Seriously, like I'm I'm taking care of the animals all day. I'm I'm taking care of emails, like doing admin stuff for myself. It's terrible. Um, I... uh, and, you know, finding the time to exercise every day, like I swim every day, like I, feeding myself every day, like the, just like the basics are, you know, take up so much time. I don't even have children. I don't have, you know, that added layer. I'm not going to school. I don't have like a day job. I'm just taking care of 
like just the basics, doing laundry. And then like on top of that, I'm like, wow, I, I only end up with a couple hours to do the art stuff. Oh no, but that other thing on the back burner, that email I have to get back to, or I have to do taxes or whatever. Like it's amazing that in, in this society, we're able to get anything done and maintaining friendships on that, on the, um, on that scale. It's like, it's not a super high priority, but like, I'm always trying to lift it up. Like I, I'm always like things that are really important to me that I'm constantly like basically making time for are my friends are for going out and seeing art. Like that's so important to me. Um, and, and for boosting up other people in the community, like these are all things that, that although they might not be necessary for my day-to-day survival, like I have to consciously make a, a room for because they are really important to nour- nourish my whatever spirit, whatever you call it. So I don't know. It's, it's just, I, I, and it's hard. It's hard to make room for these, like even just psychic space for it. But like, mm-hmm. that's, that's the key for me. And, you know, I'm, I'm, constantly like I always want to be making new friends and I understand that some friends will be there more often than not um but like just the other day a friend they set me on a blind date with a a new potential friend and oh my gosh it was so great like I sat out in the freaking rain for like three hours and drank tea and like we're just having the greatest conversation and I just I I'm you know I want to do that frequently um but that's I, I don't know, like just, just making myself do it is a thing. I, you know, I go to parties and stuff like that's a great way to meet people. Honestly, <laughs> Parties stress me out, but like, I always come home from a party thinking, wow, like I met at least two people that I could potentially be friends with. And whether or not that happens is kind of irrelevant. It's just like knowing that they're out there. Mm. Well, you know, you, while you were speaking, it, it made me think of something that I've also seen Maria tackle in her work, which is like, capitalism makes life very hard. I was literally going to say this. I was literally going to be like, (laughs) no, I'm so glad we're on the same level. No, I was just thinking about how, as you were talking, you were basically saying, I have to balance and choose between having a social life that is personally fulfilling and therefore is like a definite mental health need, a spiritual need, whatever you want to call it, being able to make art, which is both a a personal need and also the way that you, you know, live and make money Mm -hmm. and like this admin stuff. And also like just all of the, the little things that we have to do to like maintain our bodies. I see and I complain daily. Like we text daily about (laughs) like, I can't believe I have to make food again three times today. Like (laughs) it's unbelievable. And so I was just thinking so much about, as you were talking about how like this, this, I don't know, like the work week or the burden of, of living in this capitalist system constantly puts on us and how generative, how much more social, how much less isolated we would all be if we just had a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. Um, my work career's life radically changed during the pandemic. And I went from having no time to having like some time. And just like that overnight, it was like I was exercising and my mental health was better. And I was like talking to people on the phone, all of these things that I hadn't done in years just because I I didn't have the time for it. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry, like the whole time, like, I don't know, that's kind of what Essie was going to say, but that's like where my mind went during that, that piece. More time. Oh, wow. That's amazing that you're your, your mental health got better in the pandemic. That's definitely not what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's what happened to anybody, really, except that I walked into the pandemic with such terrible mental health yeah, from yeah. work specifically mm. um, that I had like internalized it to the point where I thought that was just my personality. And it was so weird because 
after all of that changed, my husband was like, you're really nice lately. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess I'm actually a pretty laid back person. And nobody <laughs> knew because for the last 10 years, I've been working myself to death. Oh, so too I just, I think it's interesting because like my whole personality is different. Any Anyone that has known me over the last 10 years and meets me is like, I don't recognize you. And I think so I don't know. That's what I was thinking about when you were talking about trying to maintain all these things. Because you're obviously doing an amazing job. I mean, your art is amazing. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you have a wonderful um, life with your friendships. You know, you've got your animals. Like it's so many things that seem rich and valuable and meaningful in your life. I'm like, man, how do they do it? Because like <laughs> I was really struggling. <laughs> it's hard though. Like I mean, I, I don't think like I mean, friendships take work, but I don't think they should be hard. And the, and the times that I've thought, oh, this friendship is hard, when I've let go of that friendship, life gets a lot happier and easier. So I've definitely <laughs> learned to let go of some friendships, even if they were meaningful to me, even if like, I just, I love the people. Like, I feel like relationships shouldn't be hard. Which is why we need more books where people let friendships go. <laughs> like, yeah. So we have like a paradigm for it. But I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think sometimes, like there are definitely hard parts, but I remember I used to be in this just horrible relationship. Looking back on it, I realized I was in an abusive relationship, but I didn't recognize that at the time. Um, he wasn't hitting me or anything, um, but but it was definitely very emotionally abusive. And there was a moment where someone, a, a friend of mine, asked me how it's going with him, and my the best I could say was like, "Oh, you know, relationships are hard." And then she kind of looked at me. And she had just the best relationship ever. And I feel like I now have the best relationship ever. Um, and I say this past tense because unfortunately she passed away. But um, I'm so sorry. But yeah, she just, I didn't say anything. She just gave me, she just kind of looked kind of sad. And I realized, oh, wait, does this have to be like this? Like, do relationships have to be hard? Like all my relationships had been hard. And I think at that point, like I kind of realized I don't need to be in a relationship if it's going to not make my life better. And uh, after that, I kind of had a short relationship that was even harder, but it wasn't at least abusive, really. Um, and then I was alone for a long time. And that was amazing. And I was like, oh, I can actually be happy, happier when I'm not tied to a person, which is was kind of a revelation because I, you know, I was in my, I was in my early thirties and I'd always been in a relationship or about to be in a relationship up to that point. And I was suddenly alone and I, I was the happiest I'd ever been. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like, okay, I'll be, I'll be alone forever. And this is going to be the best thing ever. Um, but then I met my spouse and that all went away. <laughs> <laughs> Dang because it. He's so- <laughs> like, well, okay. Just this last one. If it doesn't work out, then I'll be And alone. it's stuck. It's stuck. <laughs> okay. Maybe this is more of like fawning than a question, but I think one thing I love so much about your book um, is that it had this very like realistic, nuanced look at kind of the line between like abuse and not abuse in terms of like friendships and romantic relationships. Because mm-hmm. in most media narratives, it's like super over the top and obvious, right? This is abuse. This is not abuse. And like everyone knows it. And, you know, it's like, oh, I'm being abused. I have to get out of the situation. But the truth yeah. is that these lines are not always so clear, particularly when you're in that moment. And I felt like that feeling of like that that blurriness, that messiness was so like beautifully captured by this book, right? Yeah, it's really complicated. And it's and, and most people who are in abusive relationships 
I've seen don't realize it until after the fact. And then they're like, holy shit, I can't believe that. Like, I can't believe I was in that relationship. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. That, that's how people get stuck in those situations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I just, I thought you did such an amazing job with it. And my heart really um, broke for your narrator, who I guess is you, but not you. So I'm like, not sure how to <laughs> I approach mean, It's a hundred percent me. There was no one else. <laughs> And just the way that you kind of trace this arc between who this person was as a very young person and then kind of moving over. The, I think maybe this is, I don't, I don't read a lot of uh, memoir, so maybe this is something that the genre does specifically well. But just being able to trace that arc and kind of show how like the beginning affects the middle and the middle affects the end uh, with that context of like, you know, romantic relationships and abuse and, and even friendship abuse, I thought was just, honestly, it was so well done. It really just, it hurt to read in the best possible way. This thing that you're describing is actually not something that I was aware I was doing. So I'm very interested. <laughs> I was just going to ask you if that was deliberate. So you just answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, I, mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give too many spoilers to anyone who's listening to this, but I'm very curious about where you saw friendship abuse. That is very interesting. Right now I'm trying not to give spoilers. I think that like, we have, as a culture, this idea of being able to see abuse almost like a list of signs and symptoms. Like if you see this, mm -hmm. it's abuse. If you see this, it's abuse. But really on a, on a practical level, when it's happening or when you're in a circumstance, it's, it's very much on a spectrum, right? And we all make these like contracts with each other in our own friendships or relationships on a case-by-case -case basis as to what we're willing to tolerate, what, what mm -hmm. hurts, what doesn't hurt. And so I think some of the friendships and particularly the central friendship in this book was so uh, messy and difficult. And there is some, I guess I'll call it deception. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be very vague here. So um, some <laughs> uh -huh. deception, there's some um, manipulation, manipulation. There are circumstances where a person's expressing an emotion and another person is, you know, refusing to hear them almost like a form of uh, gaslighting essentially. Yeah. And so I just, I saw like, you know, the question becomes like, well, why would a person kind of, the questions often in, in these, when we have these conversations in society, well, why would a person put up with this or why would a person deal with this? And you did such a great job of showing kind of like the incremental steps in a person's entire arc of their life that kind of get them into these situations and how they feel, how they're reacting. And it makes so much sense, right? If you're like in that perspective, you're like, this makes sense. And maybe it's not the best way to react to something, but it it's very relatable. And I, I just thought you did such an amazing job with that. So I, I thought that was very deliberate. And so you're like, blowing my mind right now with some of the romantic relationships i don't know like i try to not be too heavy-handed about it because I, like these were things that were actually happening so i feel like the the diary entries were what kind of helped pull me back out and not just be like seeing it from like a cynical viewpoint of today like even though there's some of that um, it's funny that you mentioned like not realizing abuse as it's happening like i was just um as i was walking my dog one of my dogs this morning i was thinking about um this lecture that I'm writing and it's supposed to be about race and, uh, it, and it's, you know, complicated to write about that stuff. But I was thinking about how the times that I've experienced racism directly, like I always grew up thinking that racism was a specific thing. Like if someone calls you a racist word or whatever, but like, so you're not prepared for the racism that's a little more subtle because the outright racism that you might see in movies or, or might expect to be as racism, like that tends to be a little more subtle because everyone recognizes thing, recognizes those things as racist, but not all racists think that they are racist and they might still behave in a racist manner, but it just comes out like 
I guess that microaggressions are now like that's that's how you describe them. But like that was not a language that I had as a kid growing up as one of the only Asian people in my surroundings. Like, so yeah, the, the whole, like, that's obviously another form of abuse, but it's definitely been on my mind a lot lately as I'm trying to write about it. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, I'm sort of seeing the connection between each of these pieces. And then, you know, I wanted to bring in something that um, you always do an exceptional job of just normalizing abortion. You just you know, it just, it happens. There's, you had an abortion and it's like, we don't have to spend 12 pages agonizing or whatever. It's, but we're also <laughs> not going to not mention it. You know, it's going to mm-hmm. be there because it's a part of your experience. And I remember that from the Life on Earth series too, where they did have to go into it a little bit more because it's YA obviously. So they needed to explore yeah. it, but it was still normalized. It was still almost casual. And I, I feel the same way with how you discuss abuse, how racism does come up in the book, where it comes up in just sexuality, gender. And and mm-hmm. what I think is I'm seeing is what Maria was calling, you know, delivering it as very real. It's it's this vulnerability to say, like, these are the real facts yeah. and I don't have to dress them up and I don't have to change them. Um, I might present them a specific way. Obviously, you're an artist. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't just <laughs> your journal, um, you know, but I, I think that <laughs> that sort of unflinching examination of the realities of what it means to be Mari, but also what it means to be a a person who is of a marginalized gender, of of a marginalized race of, you know, and the list goes on in this world. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, is that just how you've always written? Is that just how you see the world and how you, you know, put yourself into it? Or is that a practice of vulnerability of, digging into yourself that you've developed or, you know, any other option, obviously. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how, like at this point I've been doing it so long that I feel like it, like how I write is pretty intuitive. Uh, like I don't put a ton of thought into it, but also because it's memoir, I don't really have to like these, these are just things that happen and this is how I see the world, etc. This is why I love reading memoir. Even if like the writing or the presentation might not be polished, it might not be like just, a grade or whatever, at least you're getting like someone's true experience. Um, I love fiction and I love all kinds of books, all kinds. Um, but I feel like when I want to just hear a story and not like, like I don't want to have to suspend my disbelief. It, it's just easier for me to read memoir. And, um, and I don't want to say it's easier to write memoir because in some ways it's, it's much, much more difficult to write memoir than it is to write fiction. Um, but there is there there is that ease like that's one of the pros of reading and writing memoir is that like that that part can feel a little more effortless. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say I don't, I don't know if it's effortless for all memoir writers. I think a lot of people will be very mm. jealous to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I think one of the things you do so skillfully that is whenever I'm working with someone who's who's trying to work on memoir, this is one of the things I talk to them about is like you need to really narrow your scope. You can't cover your whole life in a memoir. That's an autobiography. You really want your memoir yeah. to be about a theme, about a, a conflict, a moment in time, or a, a thread throughout your life. And you do that so well. I mean, your, your memoirs are all exceptional. And I think it was so neat to, to know that you had this huge body of work behind you, because you really do. You do so much. And, and this was a new sort of frontier in some ways, and a familiar one in some ways. And I don't know. I mean, I... I 
I just want to talk about it forever and I'm running out of like specific questions, but one. Oh, I have a question. Okay, perfect. Go ahead. (laughs) You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hello there, listeners. It's me, your beloved Essie, back to tell you about something that maybe you don't know about yet that you might want to take advantage of. Did you know we're active over on Patreon? We're at a new address. It's patreon.com slash queerspec. If you go to patreon.com slash bitchesoncomics, it still redirects there for the time being. But we're at patreon.com slash queerspec. And we have just so many episodes. We have over 100 back episodes. And we're constantly coming out with new stuff. We have these amazing conversations where Priya, our editorial coordinator, and Sarah Sentry, one of our hosts, sit down and talk about the Phoenix Saga. (laughs) They call these episodes the Bitches of X. They are fucking incredible, and I hope you will tune in. You also typically get 
early access to our episodes each week and other fun stuff. We've done Christmas bonuses. We do interviews that are only available on our Patreon. We provide all the inside scoops before you even know you need them. The whole shebang. We hope you'll join us there. Again, it's patreon.com slash queerspec. I think it's a question we've actually already asked, but I want to ask it in a slightly different way, which is I would love to know more about like the timeline of this book in terms of like, because you've kind of hinted that it had a difficult journey to publication and you mentioned Mm -hmm. like when it first started, uh, like when you first conceived like, okay, this is when I have to start writing this story. Although it sounds like you were thinking about that story for a long time before you were ready to like you know, uh, I don't want to use a gun metaphor, but like snap the rubber band or whatever. So <laughs> I'm doing my best here. So I would love to know more about like the timeline of this book between like first conception until now and like the process, if you if you feel comfortable about publication, oh, yeah. editing, all of that, because it sounds like you had a really fascinating journey. Sorry, I see. I was, I've been sitting on that and I just, you know me. No, no, so. please. So the book itself, I mean, the contents of the book itself, let's see, the last entry is 2019. Um, and the first entry was, what did I say, 2016? But yes, I, I, obviously a lot of these things happened before then. Uh, yes, January 7th, 2016. And the last one is, yeah, 2019, uh, May 23rd, 2019. And, um, gosh. So that first book in my young adult trilogy for Life on Earth, it's called Losing the Girl. That book was really about Jody. Um, but, Mm, a lot of the things that I'm were happening, like I had just found out at that point the real reason that she stopped being my friend, and I was going through it. <laughs> um, that was let's see. Well, I mean, not just find out, found out because that happened in 20, 2009 or the end of two thousand eight, and um, and I started working on Life on Earth like two years later. So I guess it was twenty eleven. Actually, no, it might have been closer to 2009. Anyway, I conceived of the Life on Earth series pretty close to when that was happening. And I absolutely was not ready to talk about it. I was not ready to process it. I was just fuming. Um, My whole life seemed like a lie. Uh, All my friendships were suspect. All my relationships were suspect. Like I was going through it. Like my, I was just devastated. And but also like all these exciting things were happening to me. I was about to get published for the first time. My career was taking off. I, I was, I just gotten married or was just about to get married. So um, yeah, like a lot of good things were happening, but like that kind of like my relationship with Jody that had happened many, many years before that. Um, but finding out the reality of what had been going on that whole time um, just pretty much ruined it all. Um like I was, I was just not happy. I went from being like the happiest person on earth to being so freaking miserable and paranoid and um, just, it was terrible, a terrible time. Um, but clearly I needed to process it in some way. And um, the concept of life on earth, where I draw each chapter from a different protagonist's point of view was sort of my way to try to see things from her perspective um, so one of the characters is very closely based on her. Um, although as I re- wrote the series or wrote the book and then eventually wrote the series, um, it became less and less about her. And, um, and so 
So that went away as, as it often does when you base fiction on reality. Um, but yeah, in the very beginnings of that, I was like, how does she see the world? How does she see our friendship? Um, both literally and figuratively, which is why I was have, trying out the different styles of artwork for each person. Um, so that was like the, the beginning of me kind of trying to write about it. Um, but yeah, it took another, uh, seven years before I actually was ready to just write about it. And I'd been trying for a long time to let it go up to that point. So that, that's how, um, the behind the scenes of the book happens. Um, I mentioned before, I kind of want to go back to it about finding visual metaphors to work with in the book. Cause once I kind of figured out like, okay, this, this green plant is going to represent Jody, um, like, and, and the roses represent my faith in Jody and the lilacs represent memory. Like once I started like nailing those, those ideas down, and like the corkboard is like me trying to figure things out. Like, like, so, so there are all these visual metaphors and, I, and some of them are more intuitive and some of them are just like literal where I'm like, okay, this is what this means. Other ones are things that just felt right. You're just right. blowing my fucking yeah. mind. Everything you're saying, I'm like, oh my God, of course. Yes. And that must've meant that. <laughs> Continue. Sorry. I was just like, you're me like, too. they're very obvious. And I'm like, well, then I'm, I'm a fool is what I am because. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I never explain it and I don't and like, but I, like, I'm hoping that people pick up on it, like just as they're reading it intuitively, but like, don't need an explanation. And it. it's fine. Like, I don't expect anyone to get, get it at all because it's, um, yeah, I never explain mm. it. I'm mostly but. goofing. Cause yeah, I mean, I definitely, you get those things without <laughs> having, that's what I think makes comics, makes visual art, makes graphic memoir so different is you can play with our subconscious with what we, we know to mean like I even you were just saying you were like oh the roses represent say it again for me uh my faith in Jody well and I called those your rose colored glasses and it's like yeah okay that's not exactly how you put it but I can see the connection between those things there is yeah so yes. like yeah I, I didn't get it but part of me got it but it's just so fun to hear you you know reveal <laughs> what they meant to you and then I'm like oh oh I have to go read it again <laughs> <laughs> So that thing that you mentioned before about the the bright red flowers, um, I, I'm not going to say exactly what that meant, but um, but those were when I was using bright red colors. I was often trying to express anger or fury, but also like deception. Like there there are a lot of different. I mean, they're kind of interchangeable, so it's not all like one thing necessarily. But yeah, I didn't understand that, and at the same time, I still loved it. And I think that's one thing about. I think the art, it, it's so compelling. Like it obviously feels very meaningful. And I think I like felt an emotion when I saw it. I don't think that I under, understood it like on an intellectual level, um, but I still like very much enjoyed it. So obviously you're like, I don't want, I don't want to call it because I don't do art, but like visual eye or your visual choices are, are resonant on mm -hmm. a subconscious level, even when they're not, even when I don't know what things mean. Mm -hmm. That that was what I was hoping for. Like, honestly, I, you know, I don't want to be, have people be like, oh, well, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And like for them to like step out of mm -hmm. the experience of the book, like I, I want it to kind of seep in and give them a feeling like that's ultimately what the visuals are for is to give them a feeling. Mm. You know, someone's going to like write like a grad school paper 
on this at some point. <laughs> and I just hope they listen to this episode because it's really going to help them out is all I'm saying. It's all I'm saying. Um, you know, something that we talked about off the air, and I realized it wasn't actually on uh, in the interview yet, is that Maria and I both found this this book just unputdownable. Like just, you know, I think, uh, yeah. you know, Maria, you tell about your experience, Maria, and then I'll, I'll jump in of like reading it. Well, like all people with ADHD, I overscheduled myself like a week after debut. And I was like, I can't accomplish my life right now. So I, w- I knew I had to read this book before this interview. And I, had, I hadn't actually heard of you before because I'm not really well connected to anything. I'm like, I'm like culturally bereft at all times, but I'm working on it. <laughs> and it's true. I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere and I'm like, I'm like kind of integrating with society right now. It, it's a process. Um, but so I thought, okay, I'm just going to like set a small goal. Cause that's one thing I've been trying to do with ADHD, right? It's like, what's the smallest possible step? Just do that step. And then sometimes it helps with the executive functioning. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to read like one chapter. Um, not having no idea how long chapters are in this book or whatever, but <laughs> the, the way that it's structured makes it so addictive. I mean, it's addictive for a lot of reasons, but the way that it's structured, it's almost like it, it taps into that part of my psychology, at least that's kind of like the infinite scroll on Twitter, like each page or presentation is a self-contained story, right? Like there's, you know, you have the visual piece, you've got um, like the, the written piece that again, like every single page kind of has its own little story, it almost stands alone. And so I kept saying like, okay, well, just one more, well, just one more, well, just one more. And the next thing, I, and I was doing it on my phone. So I was scrolling up just like I was on Twitter or Instagram or something. Wow. And suddenly it was over, right? Because I had read like for four or five, I don't, I don't know how long because I'm time blind, but like, you know, I sat down and then, you know, I read a whole book and it was just so addictive and I just couldn't put it down. And I remember thinking the whole time, like that I wanted, I wish I knew who you were that in a way that I could contact you and just like live tweet this whole book to you and like all my reactions <laughs> and feelings because I was having a lot of reactions. And it's the kind of book that you want to talk to people about. Like it's immediately generative of conversation, right? So I'm like enjoying it. I can't put it down. And I also want to talk to somebody. Um, so that that was my experience. Yeah. And, and mine was, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to read, you know, a couple you know, I'll read a hundred pages. I knew it was longer than that. I was like, if I read a hundred pages, I'm fine. And and I don't even remember how many I got to, but it was like the middle of the night. <laughs> I was like, I must go to sleep. I need sleep. And so <laughs> I slept, but then I woke up. I couldn't, the only thing on my mind was, I thought you loved me. I was like, I have to, I have to read it. Or I'm not going to be able to function today. I need to finish it because it is so <laughs> compelling. And, you know, I, at the top of the, the show, I, I made a joke about like, uh, you know, it's kind of a gossip rag in some ways, but I meant that as a really com- like a compliment because part of what drives us forward is we're like, what the fuck? Like, what happened? Like, <laughs> wait a minute. And you did this thing where I, I was like, if I can't wait for my physical copy uh, when I get it, I, I, I will probably when I reread it, throw the book at that point, because it was like you were like, and then I figured out what really happened. And then you turn the page and you're like, but wait a minute, let me tell you about. And I was like, oh my God, I stop it. I need to, oh my God. I had the exact same reaction. I had the, I I had the, I'm telling you, like I had the word for word, in the exact same point of the book, the exact same reaction. Like I am there with you. (laughs) That makes me so happy. Which is why I was so shocked when you were like, oh, well, I didn't really structure that part. It just kind of came out because like, hey, I write, I write thrillers. And if reviews are like <laughs> anything, supposedly the plotting is pretty good, right? And I've worked really a lot on thriller plot. I thought this was like a really thrilling plot. Like uh, it's, it, you know, it's not like a you know murder. It's like a little bit more contained than that. But, but like, 
you know, the the twists are huge and the the change in stakes and like just the way each twist makes you go back and look at everything you read until that moment and and like see it in a whole new way. I, I couldn't believe, like, I'm so jealous. Like, I'm so unbelievably <laughs> jealous. But that part, I mean, it, it, I don't know. I knew what, I did know what I was doing with that, that particular moment in the book. Um, but also I got into that moment of writing it and I'm like, wait, I do have to explain the whole Gary thing. And so that, so that was actually, that was, that was Oh my God, genuine. Gary. <laughs> I have to explain Gary. Like he, he just kind of pops out of nowhere and I'm like, wait, no, you need to know the context. Because if you don't know the context of it, then you don't understand what's what's mm-hmm. at stake. So yeah, I definitely like even though I knew what I was doing as hook wise, like it still was pretty organic. But it was nice too because it's this moment of like, oh my god, poor Mari. You know, you're, that's what you're just thinking. You're just like, Mari, how are you going to make it through this one? Like you are just getting the <laughs> shit kicked out of you by relationships. Like I hate this. And then and then you give us this like. <laughs> And then there was Gary. And we're like, oh, thank God. Like, oh, wow. You know, Mari deserves a break. And, and it feels so good because I think in memoir, something that people, I think, struggle with is like putting someone in too much danger without a sense of like, are they okay? Because they're real people, right? It's not characters. Because if you kill off a character, people are like, I'm sad, but you know, you made him up, so fine. But like, to know that you were actually like, okay, we're going to go to a much darker place, but first... I want you to know I'm okay. You know, it's like that moment. And I was like, oh, relief. I mean, I knew you were okay because again, because I'm I'm a, a super fan, but it was nice to have it in the narrative because it was the tension was so high at that point. We were like, ah! yeah, it was. you know, so to have me like <laughs> we're cool. That was a nice thing. I mean, that's how I feel like about my life, though, Gary. Oh, we awesome. love Gary. We love Gary. <laughs> He's Really oh, great. <laughs> so good. Well, um, Maria, did you have any more questions about I Thought You Loved Me? I know you wanted to talk about the publishing mm, yes. aspect. Yes. I would love to hear about, but as a person who's very salty about publishing at all times, uh, just, <laughs> which it's been pretty nice to me lately, but I'll, st- I'll never stop being salty. Like, I would, I would love to hear it. So, so yeah, this isn't my first book. And, um, and I knew from when I was trying to sell Life on Earth how freaking hard it is to sell anything that hasn't been done yet. Mm-hmm. Um, like people, like the bigger publishers, especially they want something that's tried and true. They want, um, and even if you're like a known quantity, like they still want something that they know is going to sell. So they don't want anything that's like different or pioneering or, you know, trying new things. Or if it is, it has to be really subtle. And this book obviously is pretty weird. Like it's like, and I say that, I mean, I like weird, so I'm not, I don't find that self deprecating, but it's unusual um, just purely in like how it's presented. I mean, it's sort of comics, there's comics, but it's not exactly comics. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a new, a new thing ish. I mean, other people have tried new things. It's not completely, um, unique, but I, I, it's, it's unique enough that it was very, very, very difficult to find a publisher for. And, um, I did, so, uh, this one publisher, um, an LGBT, BTQ press, um, eventually picked it up and, uh, and I was very excited about that. Um, and then all this pandemic stuff happened where basically some of the places that they'd gotten quotes from, um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't honor the quotes. Oh man. Some of them rescinded their quotes, did like a no bid because they had run out of paper, like run out of the, and it was, to the point where they showed me the paper, they showed me the numbers and they're like, 
okay, if we print this, it's going to, we're going to have to sell, I don't know, thousands of books. And then after that, you know, to make the money back. And after that, we're going to get like 12 cents a book. Wow. Um, and, and they're like, you know, this is not viable right now. And, and they were really sad about it and said, look, um, and, you know, they'd spent a lot of time helping me, um, you know, arrange the book. And like, we, we spent a lot, many, many hours together. Um, so it's not like they didn't have anything invested in this, uh, but they're just like, you know, we can either wait until like the, the world of paper gets better or, um, or we can give you your rights back. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, find another home for it. And I was, I was, I mean, I was pretty devastated. Yeah, obviously. I can't imagine you wouldn't be. Um, and this was, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, other things that happened in the pandemic that, um, like for one, I was having some pretty bad mental health crises due to, um, for many, you know, many factors. I think a lot of people were having problems. I happened to be in, a, in the middle of a horrible neighbor situation. Oh my God. Um, where- that was so bad. I followed on Instagram. It was bad. You had bad times. I would read oh. a memoir of a horrible neighbor situation, FYI, like that. It, it is so stressful. I writing about Oh my God. It. And I had to have a therapy session and she's like, you're not ready. <laughs> oh my God. I, I'm on Lexapro. I am in a safe place. I moved out of that situation. It's been a year. And I, um, I was doing research cause I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be a great story. And I suddenly like after, I don't know, I was working on the book for like six hours one day. I'm just like, you know, I was in the zone or I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And I suddenly felt so unsafe. I was in the middle of it again. I was in the middle of a fucking panic attack, even though I'm on Lexapro, you can bleep that off if you want. Um, but I was, it, and it just, it all came back to me and it was like, I was there and I'm like, oh shit, no, I can't, you know, there's like, it, it physically felt like I was there again. Um, I experienced some anti-Asian racism during the pandemic. Like, and I, I developed like a, I think it was like a panic disorder, like all sorts of bad things were happening um, during, during the pandemic. And also my career um, kind of got halted during that. Like, I mean, I'm, I will spare you the details, but like basically that I was beginning a book tour to finally tour my young adult trilogy um the month that everything shut down. So I managed to get it and everything got canceled. And I feel like if it had happened later, I would have done the virtual circuit that everyone was doing. But by that point, it's kind Mm -hmm. of too late or I don't know. Like I just, I I never got to promote it. The book sold so bad. um, They pulped my books before I even got my old copies. Like it was. Oh my goodness. Wait, this has a happy ending. I'm like, are you (laughs) sure? Do I need to go fight someone? Cause I'm ready. (laughs) No, I mean, I think the pulping might have been an accident or I don't know what exactly what happened, but like the books were not selling and I heard all sorts of reasons for it. Like I know people who had books that sold really well during the pandemic, but first of for whatever reason, this specific genre for this specific age group, at least this is what my agent and other people told me, well, like this, this, you were in a bad spot for this. And um, basically I thought my career was over because if your books don't sell, you don't get another one. Well, you get a, if you get another one, you're not going to get paid like very much. Basically, I it's like I had gone back a decade, and I'm like, I can't start. I'm about to have a panic attack right now. <laughs> it was really 
like we had some pitches out. I even had some finished books out and I'm like, I, I can't do this anymore. Could you pull, you know, pull my pitches? Like I'm, you know, I had like a big publisher interested in something and I'm like, like, no, I can't, I can't actually, I'm done. Like I, I quit comics. <laughs> and, um, and of course, you know, he was upset. And he didn't say he was upset, but I could tell, like, you know, he'd been working hard on these pitches and I'd been working with a big publisher on a pitch. And I'm just like, I can't do this. Um, and then the first book in that series got banned in, uh, in Katy, Texas. You said um, happy so- ending. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to it because that it seems like things are getting worse and not better. No, it gets worse before it gets better. But um, so it got banned. And then I'm like, wow, insult to injury. Like, <laughs> this really oh sucks. Gosh. Um, but because it got banned and because people noticed that it got banned, and here's the thing, not every banned book actually gets noticed that it's banned, but because I was lucky enough to have it noticed and written up in the LA times. And, um, and then my, one of my best friends called me and, and she's like, my boyfriend saw your, you were banned in the LA times. I'm like, what? Um, so (laughs) that restarted my career. And suddenly those books were back in print. Um, my other books, which I didn't realize were out of print were suddenly back in print. And, um, and now I'm just like going forward. And now I have another big book deal with like, with a big publisher who convinced me to keep going with that book, but I'm like, I'm not going to draw it. And so they, they said, okay, well, if you find an illustrator, so I'm actually, I've got a book coming out with Chung Ling Nguyen. What? In 2026. What? Two of my yeah. fucking favorite people. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm losing it. I am losing it. <laughs> With uh, in little brown with little brown in twenty twenty six, so like and Trump art is it. so oh, good. I cannot wait to see it. With oh my god, I'm so excited. I could not believe that Trump said yes. Like I'm just like and and they were the first person I asked, and because I'm like, well, I I gotta I gotta ask like my dream illustrator first, even though Trump is like way a much bigger star than me. Like they said yes. So um, anyway, happy ending. My career is back on track, but man, that was a close call. Um, so anyway, so all this is happening during all the bad stuff before the dan- book banning, <laughs> which was also the bad. Dark times. Like, very dark time. And so then on top of like my books being pulled, my career being over, also I lose my, my small press mm. who's going to publish this book. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this freaking sucks. Now there, um, Rob Clo, who's a, a, a comics critic for the, the comics journal he's a, a good friend like you know over over time like you become good friends with pretty much everyone in the industry <laughs> like that's just what happens like everyone knows each other um and i had asked him to look at the book right after i'd written it because i'm like i don't know if this is good or not you know i think it was even before yeah it was before i even had the publisher i just said uh rob could you look at this he also has a business where he um, he reviews people's books and he's got a very reasonable rate um, and, you know, and, and gives, gives you feedback as a, as a comics critic. And, and he was going through some hard times. So, so I'm like, Oh, I'll give him some work. And I had him look at it and he came back and said, this is the, this is your best work. Oh. Um, and I like, and I was like, Oh shit, really? Like, this is like, it's, you know, I, I needed to hear that. And I think, a week later, I got, um, I got the publisher. And so he, he said that he's like, you know, if you ever want to publish something with Fieldmouse, which is a 
company, a publisher that he and a couple of people had just started, like right at the beginning of the pandemic or like right before the pandemic. It's like, if you want to publish something with us, like, I know like it's crowdfunding. I know you're not into that, but like, you know, keep us in mind. I'm like, yeah. Um, so I got the publisher that fell through after, I don't know, six months, a year. And in that time, I'd gotten some really good, um, uh, blurbs. I got a blurb from Alexander Chi. Um, I asked Rob Klo for a blurb since I knew he liked it already and he'd read the book. So he, he like gave me that, uh, the feedback and he gave me a blurb. And then when, when I'm like, Oh damn, what am I going to do with the book? I went back to him and I'm like, would you want to publish this book? And he was like, hell yeah. Amazing. And uh, so he became my publisher and he, he's the hero of this book. I mean, he, he made this book happen. Like he kept me going and he made the book happen. And yeah, he's my, yeah, Rob. Like, Woo! Yeah, amazing. And yeah, I can't believe I have three other things that happened to you during the pandemic to bring up. Like, I can't believe you did all of that. <laughs> and I know of three, like I personally know of three others. One is I wanted to hear a little bit about the mural that went up in the, in the Bay area. I'd love to hear about that. Oh, oh so that, that's in Los Angeles. Oh, I'm sorry. In Los Angeles. That's okay. Um, and that was, I, so I was still living there and I was still going through all the horrible, pan, like the horrible neighbor stuff, um, which someday will be a book once I could stop having panic attacks about it. Um, <laughs> that, and yeah, that, that was a weird situation because um, the person who contacted me about it, like contacted me through a DM on Instagram. I think it was Instagram. Maybe it was Twitter. And so already I'm like, is this legit? And she's like, oh yeah, we, we are the same people who did like Shepherd Fairy's Hope poster. And like, I Googled her, I couldn't find much information about it. I'm like, is this a scam? Are they going to ask me for my credit card info or like my bank information <laughs> lately? But I'm like, okay, they're offering me a lot of money and it's for like the LA healthcare. And like, it seems like a good message. Um, and so actually it wasn't until they unveiled the mural that I was entirely sure I wasn't being scammed by a Nigerian <laughs> prince. <laughs> seriously <laughs> now this might give you some insight into my mental state at the time where i was in this paranoid state like on top of everything maybe that had something to do with it but like we were in contact the work was very very hard um, um i was it was the first time i've worked with the government so i didn't real like i've never gone through those levels of bureaucracy before um, it was, yeah, it was a very difficult three weeks of creating this art and then they unveiled it. Um, and I hadn't really left the house except to maybe go pick up like to store, like the Whole Foods pickup where they deliver your groceries to you, but like, and going to parks, but like, I hadn't really seen my friends and it felt like forever. Like I was felt really isolated and I was surrounded by people who hated me, which were my neighbors, um, so it was a really horrible, dark time. And I just felt inherently unlovable. Um, and just, and also I was having panic attacks all the time and I was terrified of getting sick. I still am. <laughs> uh, but like, it was just, it was just a really horrible time. And then she's like, well, can you come out to the dedication ceremony? I'm like, okay. It was outdoors. Everyone was in masks. Um, I don't, I don't know like how much we knew about the pandemic at that point, but like the vaccines had just come out. Um, and so, so I did it and suddenly I was surrounded by all these people who loved me. I mean, they didn't know me, but like who, who loved the art that I put up and who were just so happy to have like an Asian person 
talking about like anti-Asian hate and like things that had happened, which is what my pandemic was about. I mean, my pan- my, which is what the mural was about, which is about like, we're going through a hard time right now, but like, look, this is not the first time that Asian Americans have faced hardships, like, and we've gone past it and look at all these wonderful people who helped us get past it. I mean, so it's, it's a comic book or a comic, um, but in mural form. And so they opened this mural and it was just such, it was so good. It felt so good. Like I was crying <laughs> after my mask the whole time. I felt so welcome. We just had so much community out. Um, and then they, they, people loved it so much that they did another mural. I think there's four of the exact same mural in various parts of LA County. And they did like, they, pla- like, they plastered posters of it up everywhere. It was like 500 posters of this artwork I'd made. And like, Oh man, it's, it's, it's brought me so much joy that the actuality of it was so hard and I was so worried that I was getting scammed, but like in, in the end, like it just was so refreshing. And also after that, I'm like, I don't know, should I still be making comics? Cause this was such a good experience and I'm getting so much good feedback. And I only spent three weeks on this as opposed to 10 years. So <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still not entirely sure I'm in the wrong profession because that, that, pretty amazing like I still have like people like pose in front of it for Instagram or whatever and and like I got so many just heartfelt emails from young Asian parents who like brought their kids to see it and had their first conversation about mm. racism with their kids oh my goodness oh my goodness all this like, amazing stuff I'm like I don't know that all of my books have had this this kind of impact on anyone but um so yeah, that's the story mm. of the murals. Can I just um, say one thing I find super inspirational about you is the fact that you just do so many different things. Like, I don't know how else to put that, but like, um, obviously as a person with ADHD, I lack focus and I'm constantly falling in love with some new hobby or thing that I want to do. And there's this very real narrative in our culture that like people should pick a thing and get really, really good at it and then like monetize the thing and then just keep doing that, right? And you're just so like wonderfully successful in all of these different areas and you're just so authentic and you, you, you clearly love like experimenting in all these different areas and mediums and things like that. And I just, I'm like, oh, I want to grow up and be like, I mean, I'm grown up, but you know what I mean? Like I want to grow up and do that. You know, it's, it sounds amazing. But you can, I get bored. Like that's, that's part of the thing. Like I don't want to keep doing the same thing again and again. Like, and that's kind of the problem with this capitalist, the specific capitalist society is like, People see that you make something that's successful and they're like, okay, do that a hundred thousand times. I'm like, no, I've already done it. I'm, I'm ready to move on. Which brings me thing. to a book you wrote and published, or at least published during the pandemic, which is Dirty Produce. And I have, <laughs> I do not hear people talk about it very often. I got it because it was you. And like I said, super fan. And I gave it to my partner who's a chef. <laughs> for like a gift and we just we die laughing all the time we just like look at it and then just laugh and laugh and laugh so I would love to hear a little bit like if you want to tell our listeners what dirty produce is about and then you know what was this lighthearted process like in the midst of all this intensity can I just say it like as soon as you said that I googled it and I can see the pictures and I am I'm dead like I've already purchased this like I was like instant (laughs) clicking as you were talking I was like oh my god look at these avocados like what is happening here I mean, of all, like, I know I do memoir, but I feel like of all the books that I've done, like, that Dirty Produce is, like, the most, like, that's me. <laughs> it's just, 
I, I feel like it's just dorky and silly and just stupid and, and sexy. fun. Like, <laughs> let me let, let me read this. Please let me read this. Okay. Eating your fruits and veggies sounds so wholesome, but is it? Discover a world of lusty lemons, erotic eggplants, <laughs> cauliflowers that can't keep their florets to themselves, and peppers doing things you've never dreamed possible with mutual enthusiastic consent. Of course. Like, this is amazing. This is, I, I, I think you've just cured racism. I don't know. Like, this is the most amazing, like, I, there, I'm dead. I'm I, I'm dead. Like I'm absolutely dead. Like this this is this is the book we all needed and we didn't even know we needed. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like the, the, this book really reflects my day to day personality. Like if you know me, then this is the book that you're like, oh, that's Mari. Whereas the, I mean, my memoirs can be kind of kind of serious or whatever. And it's not that I don't have that side of me, but like I'm just a big dork. Like <laughs> fruit and vegetable dork. I did not write that copy. <laughs> Not write that copy, although I did insist that they in- add like enthusiastic mutual yes. consent or whatever. That's my favorite I'm, part. And I'm a vegan, by the way. So like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, dirty produce. Like, yeah, like I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> it was just such a gift to get that lighthearted, funny, uh, oddly sexy book in the midst of like there. It was. It's been a rough couple of years, and it really. Oh my god, you're right. Gift, me. gift. I, I'm going to buy another one right now. I know someone who needs this in their life. Perfect. Like, Hey, yeah, that, so I, um, years ago, I think it was like 2016 or what, I, 2015, early on when I moved to Los Angeles, I was doing, I, I was part of the post-it note show at Giant Robot. They do it every year or it's a bunch of like hundreds of artists send them post, post-its and you, they sell for like 20 or 30 bucks. I think it's 30 now. Um, and people get really creative with it. And, and every year I'm like, what am I going to draw on a post-it? And I drew, I with some whiteout and a pen, I drew a, le- a, a banana blushing. And I was like, hmm, why is that banana br- blushing? And then I just drew like, I don't know, six more, eight more fruits, like doing kind of being a little sexy. And I'm like, and it just made me laugh. I'm like, oh, this is so fun. And, and because of that, I made a little scene. And so all these people who are like, Oh, they, you know, oh, I like your work, but I really like that zine you made, which is completely like different than anything I'd ever done. And so it was just like a fun thing. Um, and I think my, it was my agent who's like, you should really expand this. We should, this should be a book. I'm like, uh, and like everyone was like, oh, you should make stickers. You should make t-shirts. I'm like, yeah, I'm not really a merch person. That's too much work for me. I don't want my house filled with t-shirts, you know? Uh, so anyway, my, that was just one of the many things that my agent was pitching. And uh, one day, like I, like the person from the New Yorker, Emma from the New Yorker, uh, reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to submit anything to us? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. And I'm like, what if I submit this, this my dirty produce? And um, eventually it ran on the New Yorker's Daily Shouts. It took like a year though, for us to negotiate the contract. And by us, I mean, me and my agent, I love having an agent. Everyone should have an agent because you don't want to get screwed by big corporations who, whose contracts just only protect their interests. Um, that's all I'm going to say on the subject, but it took about a year. And then finally that ran. And like, I feel like within a week or maybe a month, I had a publisher for it. Um, a publisher that had apparently turned it down prior um, because they, for whatever reason, I think she didn't think it was very funny. 
But well, they um, were publishing houses have a high turnover. I'm looking at this and, three uh, bean this- salad with the beans just like <laughs> making out. I'm like losing my mind. I can't even breathe. There's a pear sitting on the toilet and there's a cucumber peeking at the pear through a wall and it says a pickle for your thoughts. I can't breathe. This three bean salad is sending me. Like I can't. So the idea that someone didn't think it was funny, unacceptable. Like, what is wrong with that person? It's not acceptable. <laughs> Yay. I'm so happy. Now, this that Dirty Produce is probably my favorite book to make. Like, I had so much fun. I was just laughing the whole time. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. It makes me want to learn how to do comics. I'm like, I got to do this. (laughs) I want to draw things doing dirty things. (laughs) Yes, come, come. I can't draw. (laughs) That's a good idea. (laughs) I can't draw either. Everyone says they can't draw it. No one one can draw. But, you know, if you could could write. Yeah, you know, I've been sort of trying to teach myself to draw. I used to draw when I was younger. So I'm like, okay, let's get it back. And, yeah, I think it's amazing because things like dirty produce really do inspire me they make me think like wow you can just be really fucking hilarious oh is this kidney bean farting (laughs) (laughs) it sure is (laughs) i can't (laughs) and the green beans like unzipped itself so it's like bean pots are coming out <laughs> yeah, so obviously listeners, you need you need dirty produce. You didn't know, but now you know. I just bought like two more copies. Maria's <laughs> <laughs> not gonna stop till she has 45 copies. As the Gen Zers say, this book is now my entire personality. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Mari, it has been so delightful talking with you today. The third thing that I, I know you're up to during the pandemic uh is one of the things I want to take some time for you to talk about now, because you have a super cool Patreon where you do diary comics. And I got, that's how you share some of them on Instagram. That's how I've learned about your many, many pets, your interest in fashion, the way you've been navigating the world. (laughs) And so I was hoping you would talk a little bit about your Patreon, but also um, I was hoping you would talk a little bit more about how you decided to draw them on the specific paper you're using. Cause I thought that was really fascinating. Oh, well, you know, I, I change it up every so often. I've been doing the diary comics, I think, since 2016, every day. Um, and there was a period after I got my iPad uh, that I'm talking to you on right now. There was a period where I was experimenting on the iPad and um, started playing around with collage. So there was a, yeah, a period of diary comics that were just entirely collage, which now I know I was just preparing to write this book. Um, mm. but yeah, the, so that was happening, um, right now in the last, I guess I, I just bought another one. So in the last uh, two years or last year and now I'm working on a Hobonichi and, uh, lately, although this last batch hasn't been, but lately I've been using fountain pens that my friend Susie Garamani got me into. Um, I already had some, but she's got me even more into it lately. Um, so yeah, I, I just, but like, I like experimenting. As I say, like I get really bored easily and I feel like my Patreon is, is for my super fans. Like they know way too much about me. Um, but it's also, uh, they kind of see my process as it changes 
And it's where I do all of my experimentation when I want other, you know, when I want to share it with other people, um, which honestly, let's, let's face it. I share everything with everybody. Um, so yeah. Uh, and where can people find your Patreon? Oh, patreon.com slash Mari Naomi. <laughs> I think it is. Um, I never would have yeah, guessed. <laughs> for like five bucks, I think you can read all of my diary, diary comics mm. since 2016. Plus I, I like comics that I have published elsewhere. I, if I can get permission, I'll also put that on Patreon. I have like work in progress stuff. Um, yeah, that's sort of like where I, where mm-hmm. anything goes. Mm-hmm. Like I post things now and then on Instagram, but like just because I want to keep staying <laughs> in the algorithm and, um, and also I try to get more patrons. Patrons? Who can say? Patrons. No, I'm just making, I don't know. <laughs> We're trying to get some more Patron. Tequila. No, that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> uh, so, Mari, beyond Patreon, if folks want to find you online or follow you on social media, where can they do so? MariNaomi.com is my website, and it connects you to all the different places, including my databases. Um, I stopped using Twitter um, for self-expression. Now I just use it for the occasional like posting my tour dates, which are coming up this book um but uh i yeah once elon musk bought it i'm like this is getting too toxic i can't support this so i'm off Mm -hmm. twitter for the most part but i'm still on instagram i do occasionally post on facebook since (laughs) my mother-in-law is there and i love her Uh, but patreon if you if you want all mari all the time patreon's definitely the way to go (laughs) fantastic and listeners if you didn't have a pen don't worry we will make sure to include that in the show notes mari wow like what I'm I'm still flabbergasted and we've been talking for almost an hour and a half I'm like wait I don't even know what it wait let's go back to the beginning I want to talk about it again I thought you loved me is an incredible incredible graphic memoir we haven't even talked about the cover I'm looking at it right now I fucking love that cover oh it is it's it's so amazing listeners this is coming out this month it comes out on February 22nd so pre-order it now you have time pre-order I thought you love me let's support Mari Naomi's amazing work of course you still need to pick up dirty produce if you're like Maria you're going to want to buy five to 12 copies depending on you know I'm going to let you guess a number between five and ten and if you get it right I'll buy that many more copies because that's where we're at right now I'm like I'm trying to think of people who don't need this in my life Absolutely perfect. Maria, thank you for being here with us today. Can you let folks know where they can find you online and on social? Yes, I am everywhere on social media. I'm on Twitter at Maria Dong Writes. I am on Instagram at Maria underscore Dong underscore Writes because I somehow accidentally reserved Maria Dong Writes and now can't get back into it. I'm on TikTok <laughs> at Maria Dong Writes. Um, I'm on Mastodon at Maria Dong Writes at Wandering.shop. I don't use any of these with regularity, so good luck. <laughs> oh, I do have a TikTok too. I, oh, good. I, I just post tea review videos and like, and me picking up garbage on the beach. So it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, multifaceted, as we know. Well, this has been, I, I what a wonderful way to spend this time. You are both huge lights in my life, very different ways, but uh, I, I love your work. We are these three beans. We're these three beans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I think
think that's the show, folks. Have a great day. <laughs> Can we call this one three beans in a pod? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> doesn't even make sense. <laughs> You're listening to Bitches on Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Bitches on Comics is a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them most in comics and pop culture, as you probably guessed. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at at BitchesOnComics. Our website is, brace yourself, BitchesOnComics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes and check out all the other shit we have on our tabs. I don't know what all is there, but enjoy. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast by joining us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at sefleenor.com. I'm Monica Estrella and you can find me at www.audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. If you like Bitches on Comics, you might also enjoy our narrative fiction podcast, Decoded Horror Channel, available wherever you get your podcasts and at decodedpride.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories due to colonization. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.